Hi there, Pastor Austin Vondracek here. Thank you for joining us at Rosewood Church Online. My prayer for you is that this message will be used by God to bless, teach, and challenge you today. And whether you call Rosewood home and are catching up on a past message, or you're one of our many long-distance partners who tune in every week, would you consider giving back to support the ministries and missions of Rosewood Church? You can do so easily through our website, rosewoodchurch.org. And if you're listening and you're local to the West Michigan area, we would love to have you in person when the time is right for you. Again, I pray this blesses you and helps you grow in your love of Jesus Christ. Good morning. Welcome to Rosewood Church. My name is Austin Vondracek. I'm one of the pastors here at Rosewood. It's good to have you here, especially if this is your first time. Maybe some of you, you've been here for 50 years. Other of you, you've been here for 15 minutes. Uh, but it is good to worship with all of you today. Uh, we are continuing in our series uh, on the letter of Acts. And actually, we're nearing the conclusion of our series. Not the conclusion of Acts, but the conclusion of our series. We're going to get about halfway through, and we're going to take a pause. We'll pick it up again a little bit later. Um, today, we're going to be reading the story of Paul and Barnabas uh, as they visit a city called Lystra. But before we read that story from Acts 14, I want to tell another story, one that's even a little bit older than this story. Um, there was a man named Ovid, and Ovid uh, told a story called the Metamorphosis. Now, in the Metamorphosis, um, Zeus, the god Zeus and, and Hermes, uh, assume the, the bodies of ordinary men, and they come to a city, and while they're there, they look for a place to stay. Uh, they knock on a lot of doors, and they get a lot of rejections. No one lets them in to stay with them, until finally they come across this older couple who invites them in to stay. And because of the couple's hospitality, their home is turned into a temple, and everyone else's houses who rejected them are destroyed. So with that in mind, I, I tell you that story because this was one that was in the cultural consciousness of the residents of Lystra. This was a story that they would have known. And consequently, as something they would know, they would, they would pass the experiences that they would have through this filter. And then that's going to make some sense on why Acts 14 plays out like it does. Here's how it begins, starting at, chap at uh, verse 8. <clears throat> In Lystra, there was a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the uh, Lacionian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. 
But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, friends, why are you doing this? We are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all the nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered, had gathered around him, uh, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. All right, last week... Um, Last week, we talked about the Apostle Paul, and we really put that guy, I really put that guy up on a pedestal uh, by the end. We looked at Acts 13 and Acts 17 and compared them, and, and we took note of how, uh, how, how well Paul was able to take the same core gospel message and translate it in such a way that he could speak fluently to, uh, and not just in the, the literal language, but the words that he uses, the cultural landmarks. That, that he employed, all of those ways he, he, could, uh, he could connect with Jews in Jewish cities, and he could connect, connect with Gentiles in, in pagan cities. And so we saw how just how effective Paul was, and, and we see that in Paul we get this lasting model for evangelism, for enculturated evangelism, for speaking to people about Jesus in a language that they can actually understand. And that's what we looked at last week. I like this story. Because it's a bit of balance, right? Because it doesn't go exactly as Paul expected for it to go. I like the story because things don't always go well for him. See, like the residents of Lystra, who think that he and Barnabas are gods because of what they do with God's help, I kind of like this because in a way, I think maybe we're a little bit more like these, uh, like these residents than we might want, care to admit. They looked at Paul and Barnabas and said, they're gods, right? But like for us, we do something similar. We look at people who have these external gifts of the spirit and we look at them and we think they're godlike. There's something about them, their, their experience with God that somehow you could never have. That there's something intrinsic that God has given them that you would never receive. You could never be like them. We wouldn't call people like this these spiritual superstars. We wouldn't call them gods. Our theology knows better than that, right? We'd just call them godlike. We'd call them separate from us in some way. So maybe we're a little bit more like these residents than we care to admit, which is exactly why I appreciate this story, because here we see Paul experience something that is very familiar to us and very human. We see him experience failure. From the start, the gospel message gets confused. Then through maybe a bit of a language barrier, 
Maybe Paul didn't do his homework well enough to quite understand exactly how they might respond given that, that the story of the metamorphosis was within their consciousness. Who knows? But somehow it all gets confused and they find themselves, instead of proclaiming about God, they find themselves actually being identified as a God. And then they try to clear things up and it still doesn't work. And then some opponents come in and next thing you know, they're, getting, they're, they're, they're trying to, to kill them. And they're so close to success that they actually think he's dead. They drag him out and then they move on. It's hard to really call that a wild success of a missionary journey. But let's look at this statement of failure. Is this the right word? Now, okay, I used it, right? Not you. So let's be critical of me. Is this the right word to use to describe what Paul and Barnabas experienced? Because after all, they were being faithful in this, right? God had called them to reach the whole world with the gospel message, and they were doing it. A lot of their companions, a lot of the disciples, they weren't doing it. These guys were. And so they go out, and they're being faithful in God's call to reach people with the gospel. So is this an appropriate word? In other words, can we talk about faithfulness and talk about failure? Can faithfulness lead to failure? There are some people out there who would say, as long as you try your best, you'll never fail. Some of you maybe say that. I would disagree with you. I do believe in such a thing as failure, despite what your mom or your Instagram life coach tells you every morning, right? There are times, I believe, when we, uh, when we do things as well as we possibly can, and we have all the right motives, and we still fail. We still fail. I remember, uh, actually, this week when I was writing this message, I was in my head, I needed a break, and so I, I, um, I went down to the gym and played basketball. And um, I was down there for five minutes. Guess how many shots I made? Zero. I'm a runner. I don't do... <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I don't do ball sports. <laughs> I, but here's the thing. I, what do you call it when you... I tried on every one of the shots right? I did my very best. I had no intention of missing any shots. So what, what do you call me? What, sh what am I? Anybody? <laughs> oh, well, you almost walked into that one. I failed. Okay, I'll say it. I failed at every shot that I took. So look, there are instances of failure. There's things that we try that, that we we just, we fail at. However, however, I think there has to be this distinction as we understand faithfulness and failure. Because one thing that, that failure, one thing that, killjoy, uh, one thing that, that failure does, I think, is that it, it, it implies that there's nothing redemptive about it. That nothing good came from it. So I think that we need to look at a little bit of a different word. And that word that I, or that phrase that I want to look at today, we're going to say unmet expectations, all right? 
There are a lot of maybe different ways that you could say this. Maybe you'll take your own life and apply it to this phrase, and by the end, you'll have a different phrase. But we're going to talk about unmet expectations, acting with faithfulness, obedience, love, grace, forgiveness, peace, all of those things sometimes lead us to unmet expectations, especially when our expectation is that somehow if we do good, good will return to us, that if we do the right thing, we will see how our right actions and our faithfulness play out in in ways that are very visible and obvious to us. Being obedient to the call of God to live and speak according to his word, uh, being obedient to, to seize every opportunity we have sometimes leads us to these mountaintop experiences, but sometimes it just leads us into the valleys. Obedience doesn't always lead to these wild successes and mass conversions and, and, and solving all of the world's problems. Sometimes obedience leads you and I to places of deep sorrow and pain and division and lost relationships and confusion and fear. But as I would argue, not failure. And I think that is the distinction that we want to look at today because your faithfulness never ends in God's failure. When Paul and Barnabas spoke to the people of Lystra, it was fair to say that they experienced some unmet expectations. After all, by this point, they've kind of gotten used to things going quite well. Yes, I mean, they would go to cities and not everyone would believe. Sometimes like this, they would have to leave before they felt like they should. But by and large, they had gotten to the point where they were experiencing a great deal of success in their ministry. And in a way, this, and I bet you know what this feels like, where everything's rolling and then it kind of feels like the brakes get put on. In fact, you you read this story, and it goes so poorly, you have to kind of ask yourself, why would Luke even include this in the final draft of Acts? Why would this be preserved for over 2,000 years? One of the reasons for this is that I believe that unmet expectations make really, really good teachers. I think that in these times where you experience unmet expectations, especially unmet expectations in your faith and your obedience, that these are opportunities to learn things that you just can't learn when everything goes your way. Unmet expectations have a way of kind of waking us up because in a way I think also success has a way of putting us to sleep. Success has a way of kind of putting us under the slumber of everything going well. You get used to getting exactly what you want. You get used to God being a dispensary of success and having things go your way. You get used to just plugging your faithfulness into the algorithm that that results in some sort of good ending to everything that you want to do. Success can become a bit of a slumber and unmet expectations have a way of waking us up out of that so that that success stops being our God and we return to center where the good giver of those gifts is our God. Unmet expectations make great teachers if you're willing to listen, if you're willing to learn. 
So what does this look like? Well, we're going we're gonna to look at two, and they're going to be broad, broadly, um, broadly applied, okay? So you, again, you'll be able to kind of take these, apply it to your own situation as we all come in with unmet expectations and letdowns that are unique to us. So first off, what can we learn from unmet expectations? One is that we can learn to trust the providence of God, trusting God to care for you, his people, uh, through Uh, the journeys that take you both through the mountaintops and the valleys towards the purposes that God has for your life. And that means that what God, the, the place where God has brought you now through your faithfulness, God will not leave you there. You will not stay there. You will continue on that journey, whether again, you are on the mountains and especially if you're in the valleys, that's not where God is going to have you stay. It is going to continue, and the God who brought you there will see through his redemptive plans to the end. Unmet expectations are perfect reminders that God's way are not our ways, all right? Because at the core, when you kind of break down an unmet expectation, what it is is it's an experience where, you, where control escapes you, and you wish things were different. That's something we could all understand, right? When circumstances escape our control and we wish things were different. Later, Paul would reflect on these experiences. He would reflect on the unmet expectations, the significant losses of control. He would reflect upon the things that you and I perhaps would look at, like this experience in Lystra, and say, what a failure. And he would reflect on those things and he would tell us, he would teach us that he and you and I are crafted into the men and women that God calls us to be through these experiences. He says, he says, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character and character, hope and hope does not disappoint us. Appreciate the beauty of what Paul is saying here. A lesson, a, a, a truth communicated by God, but for Paul certainly learned through experiences, which is that the hope that doesn't disappoint is gained first through the suffering. First, through the unmet expectations, through the challenges and trials of our life, as we pass through those things, trusting in the providence of God through that process, that he will take you along the way, even if along the way it is dark and it is deep, that eventually those disappointments lead to the hope that never disappoints us. Now, here's the second point. The second thing that, uh, that we learn from unmet expectations is that we gain optimism for the end. Now, when I say optimism, I don't, I'm not talking about like that fingers crossed, hope everything works out okay kind of optimism, that shallow optimism. Now, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what Paul was talking about in Romans, okay? We're talking about hope here, a belief in that which is already assured, this kind of reminds me, uh, this, this, uh, about a week ago, I watched Die Hard for the first time. I know it's not Christmas, but I still watch Die Hard. And uh, now here's the thing. I'd seen all the other Die Hards, okay? Which, which meant that when I see Bruce Willis's character in Die Hard, the original one, I know he's going to be fine. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know he's going to be fine, Right? 
Because he has to be, because he's in all the other ones I saw. He's in the sequels. So, so in a way, I don't know anything about Die Hard when I start watching it, but I do kind of know the end, don't I? I know that he's going to survive. And that affects how I perceive the rest of the story, doesn't it? Same with you, if you've ever seen anything ahead of time. It affects how you perceive the events that take place from the beginning to the end. It doesn't change those plot points. And you may have no idea what those plot points are. But you know that, in this case, the good guy wins. So the good guy's going to be around. It changes the way you perceive those points. Now, it ruins a movie, but it provides us as Christians a great deal of hope because for us, no matter the unmet expectations that you face, no matter the outcomes of your faithfulness, whether, again, you were expecting those things or not, whether you like them or not, no matter whether you are on the mountaintop or the valley, you and I, we know how the story ends. We don't need to know nor control all of the points between here and there because we know how the story ends. We know as Christians that neither death nor life nor, nor angels nor demons nor the present or the future nor any powers, that, that, that neither, depth, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation, none of that, nothing that occurs between here and the end can separate you from the love of God. You know the end. You don't know the middle. You can do your best to guess. You can do your best to control. But you, but you know the end. And when you look at the present circumstances and you look at your present disappointments, it doesn't mean that they aren't still disappointing. And it doesn't mean that loss isn't real. And it doesn't mean that somehow you can just magically be okay with things not going how you wanted. But you know how it ends. And there's comfort in knowing that hope that we have for the end. In fact, it's kind of fitting that today we're, we're celebrating communion together. Because in a, in a way the communion elements really represent the passing of unmet expectations into the glory of the resurrection and redemption. Because when we celebrate communion, I mean, notice that word, right? What's the verb? It's celebrate. When we celebrate communion, I mean, think about, go back in time with me. Because while this cup and this bread today might represent one thing. Think back to what the, these elements represented when the blood was shed and the body was given. Imagine what these symbols meant on Calvary when Jesus died. When Jesus died, when he shed his blood and he gave his body, these elements represented the end. They represented failure. They represented failure of a movement. To the disciples, it represented unmet expectations. If they didn't, they would, would not have been hiding while Jesus died. These represent unmet expectations when they occurred. And that's exactly what they would have meant forever had the story ended there. But the good news is that the story didn't end there. 
because three days later, these elements took upon themselves a new meaning. And the blood of Christ and the body of Christ then became, for 2,000 years and beyond to this day at this time, come to represent victory, wholeness, forgiveness, life with God, justification, the presence of Christ through his spirit everywhere that we go. It didn't mean that at first, but given time, it did. And once the resurrection was applied to the crucifixion, we saw the hope that God had planned all along. So as we come to the table, please join me in prayer. God, thank you for these gifts. Thank you that these things symbolize what they do today. Help us to appreciate the process that they went through to get there. Because God, in our own lives, we are in that process as well. We are still living our stories. We are still somewhere in the middle. And God, as, as each of us here, as we experience the challenges and the unmet expectations that come our way in life, God, help us to always know that we know the end of the story. That God, even through the letdowns, you are the Lord of the letdown. That even through the unmet expectations, God, you are Lord. Jesus, you are here with us. And these symbols represent that physical reminder of that invisible reality. So God, meet us in the letdown. Meet us in the unmet expectations. God, walk with us through the valleys as you do on the mountaintops. And Jesus, thank you for this gift that you've given us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for making Rosewood a part of your day. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord.